Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. One of the most disqualifying features of the contemporary church is the perceived hypocrisy that is seen by so many when our Sunday faith doesn't make it into Monday's boardroom, classroom, or living room. Well, today's lesson from 3 John is going to show us the necessary qualities of a disciple to integrate their faith with their life and reveal by their service in the public sphere a discipleship that is distinctively Christian. Thanks for listening. Do you have a, do you have a favorite sports team? Anybody? Do, do you uh, at home somewhere in a closet or dresser, do you have a jersey or some sort of paraphernalia that you put on on game day? Come on now, be honest. How, how many of you have a Jesus jersey? Anybody have a Jesus jersey? I, saw, I think I saw one hand go up. Uh, or something, right? You got some sort of emblem you wear. Let's just say you show of hands. You've got something in your closet that speaks of your commitment to God, right? Yeah, good. That's what I hoped. I hoped as I was thinking through it, an opening illustration here that what I would find is that the majority of worshipers here at Grace are saying, yeah, you know what? I, I got the sports thing. I got the Jesus thing as well. Uh, t- today, the focus of what we need to examine is the way in which so often in our world, we compartmentalize faith and then the rest of our life. I, Jesus gets Sunday, but then it's back to the grind. And unfortunately, we have failed in many ways to, to do exactly what God has given you his spirit for. Which is to be that type of, a, I, I like the term, a secret agent. You're, you're like a secret agent out in the world because you know something that the world does not know. And this is needed now more than ever. It's needed because one of the primary things that causes a generation of young people to lose their confidence in the church is when they see the hypocrisy of our lives where we worship God on Sunday, but then the rest of the week is lived for ourselves. I don't know if you have, and maybe this is not a... That a large problem in your life. I'm hoping that as we look at God's word today, that we all by the Spirit's leading get some introspection to see where we can do better on this. But it is a real problem. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw the headline today. This is out of the Christian Post this week. Uh, 43%, that's almost half, 43% of millennials don't know, don't care, don't believe in God. Headline article showing uh, the nature of where our country is, where that next generation of young people or millennials are. The article goes on to say that research was found among the other recent generations that millennials, millennials have gone farther in cutting ties with traditional Christian views and normative biblical teaching. For example, nearly half of all boomers believe that when they die, they'll go to heaven only because they confess their sins and accept Jesus as their Savior. You know, you know the message of the gospel. You, you know that old story that, uh, that Paul preached to the nations, that the apostle Peter preached to the Jews. Compared to only 26% of Gen Xers and only 16% of millennials. This is staggering to me. I want to make sure that as we gather here to worship, that to, together we understand that the work of ministry, you guys listening, it's not my job. The work of ministry is not my job. It is our job. 
It, it, it is that false concept of thinking to say that, oh, that's what we hired the pastor for. That's what we pay him for. And that's, that's not the case at all. The, the design of shepherds within the church is such that the people of God will be equipped to do the work of ministry. So let us all just confess together. We're in this together. And those things that cause me to lose sleep at night, looking at my, my son's generation, looking at those who are in school right now who soon will not be coming back to church, that ought to bother you as much as it bothers me. And collectively, we should all ask the question, so what can we do? How can we fix this? That's the series that we're in. Just real brief review if this is your first time here. We're going through some statistics in the book uh, called Faith for Exiles, written by David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock. Looking at four different types of individuals, ex-Christians, those who only come on Christmas and Easter, those who only come to church and then leave. And then lastly, this final category that we call a resilient disciple. We are going to be studying through the book of 3 John once again and then again finally next week to see those principles of discipleship that really mirror the exact same data sets that the book has uncovered in their research. Five things that they've identified. Mark a resilient disciple. None of these other three have those characteristics that this final one does. And so as we've been going through this, just again as point of review, the first one was that your identity is shaped by knowing the person of Jesus Christ. I know Jesus. He is alive. He walks with me. He talks with me. He's not just a story character in a book. He's alive today. Uh, Secondly is uh, a belief that we have to have the continual teaching of God's word to grow us. So it's a hunger. It's a treasuring of the word of God to, to show that it has a conforming work in my life. None of the other data sets for those types of individuals care very much at all about the Bible. But a resilient disciple, you won't find dust on the cover of their Bible. They, they believe that it's God's word and they believe that it is necessary for their growth in discipleship. Thirdly is community. This was last Sunday. What I believe is one of the main things and the one that I'm challenging our church to devote themselves to is that we need intergenerational discipleship happening. And this is a pattern that we see out of 3 John. It's a pattern reflected in the data sets. So that if you are going to find somebody who stays in church, it's not by accident. They were welcomed to stay. They were treated as somebody who was valued. They were even invested in by the body as a whole. I hope that you are here today by virtue of thinking back in in your own story to say, yeah, I I can picture in my heart right now that individual who made me want to go back to church. Not the, you know, parent that made me go to church, maybe. I remember at one point, uh, I think this only happened one time uh, as I was kind of uh, hitting teenage years uh, that my dad kind of thought, you know, you, you can come if you want or not. You can stay home. And I remember one Sunday, I think I felt so bold to keep my sweatpants on and I was going to stay home. And he said, you ain't getting dressed for church, huh? No, I think I'm going to stay home today. I'm feeling good. I think I'm going to stay home. He went, hmm, hmm. I remember, I remember seeing him. He didn't have much of an answer. 
My dad had a beard that would cover his lips when he went, hmm, like this, hmm. And uh, he went went back, and I remember my sister was getting ready, and then he came back about five minutes later and said, you know, you could stay home, but get in the car. (laughs) I I never tried that trick again after that. (laughs) Thank God for parents that bring their kids to church, right? It's needed. It's easy to stay but I hope that there were more people in your life. I hope there were those intergenerational relationships that made you feel loved, that made you feel like this was a place where you belong. All right, that was last Sunday. This Sunday is going to be the subject of integration. Uh, And what the data sets show is that a resilient disciple is somebody whose faith is not limited to Sunday morning, but that their faith is integrated into the whole of their life. These are the people who are not ashamed to wear the Jesus jersey, not just on Sunday game day, but to wear the Jesus jersey seven days a week. This word integration, I wanted to give you the definition here. It it is the state of combination or the process of combining into completeness and harmony to form, coordinate, or blend into a functioning or unified whole to unite. This is God's will for your life. That you take your life that without Jesus is is crippled and ruined and as good as dead. And you take your faith where we find new life. And you learn that these two are made to be found in, in combination with one another. That you will integrate your faith into your everyday life so that the two become united. How much of your life belongs to Jesus? Could you give it a percentage? It's a little bit rhetorical. What's the right, what's the Bible study answer? What's the Sunday school answer? How much of your life percentage? Yeah, thank you. Let's just say that louder. Ready all together? 100% of my life belongs to Jesus. It's not just Sunday morning. It's not just adulthood. It's not just eh, retirement. I'll get serious about it. No, we, we live in, in a time of epidemic loss of Integration. I want to say, though, I think that's the solution. I think that the solution to what we're seeing in our world can be fixed as Christians do bring Jesus into the marketplace and the workplace and the entertainment arenas. That if we can bring Jesus everywhere we go, we will see a bit of a turn. That's my hope. That's my optimistic, probably naive hope that we can make a difference in the lives of young people by showing that Jesus is not somebody who exists in my life only on Sunday. I don't know if you guys are like me at all, but I got to just confess a little bit this morning. It really irritates me when I see people treating church like a supermarket, like just a place that you can go. The church is not a place you can go. The church is a redeemed people. And you're either part of that people or you're not. It's so, it's so even difficult for me to engage with individuals when they treat it as just another commodity, a kind of consumer mentality, Christianity, that take it or leave it, it's there for me when I need the church. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are always the people of God, but to be the people of God is to live as the people of God. So, once more, Back into the Word of God. Third John, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out. I hope you're uh, all geared up to read an entire book of the Bible today. We're going we're gonna to do it again. So you can check that off your list. 
And then we're going we're gonna to drill down into verses 5 through 8 with some observations and then conclusions. Third John. The elder to my dear friend, guys, whom I love in the truth. My dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some of the brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers. Even though they're strangers to you, they've told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from, from the pagans. We ought, therefore, show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him. And you know that our testimony is true. I have much more to write you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. All right, thank you for your attention to God's word. Verses five through eight are what we're going to focus on. Just as you uh, gaze back at the text there, this is the section where uh, John really dives into the reason why he's writing this letter. He got a report from the missionaries that were coming back and forth between the churches that what Gaius was doing was good. He was faithful in what he was doing. Um, And that those missionaries are going out for the sake of the gospel and that it is incumbent upon the church to partner together with them and then to send them off also with the blessing for which they received in their coming. This is uh, speaking largely to to another subject. We we might return again to 3 John when we look at the, the nature of church networks and how churches need to partner together and work with one another and the encouragement that we share by supporting one another. So there's a lot of that happening behind the scenes in the culture and and the occasion for which John writes this letter. But just to start us off with a couple of observations and conclusions. Number one, a disciple here, Gaius being represented by John's testimony, uh, is characterized by integrity. Uh, This word that we're given here right in verse five, uh, John says uh, to Gaius, you are faithful. Uh, really, this word in, in the original language means to act with loyalty or to demonstrate faithfulness. I want, I want to make sure that we're all tracking with that understanding that the, the commendation that's given to Gaius is one that's not based on intellect. He's not talking about uh, abstract spiritual virtue. He's recognizing his actions. He's recognizing 
his behavior. For Gaius demonstrates integrity. When this question was asked to the four uh, groups of people in the study, um, if they agreed with it, Christians are called to do their work with integrity, no matter the kind of work. These were the results uh, that were seen. Uh, Shocking to me that anybody... Are you guys with me a little bit? How would you not agree with that? Like, I don't understand how that would not be something that just, just by the nature of things, you would be like, yeah, everybody should operate in their job with integrity. But overwhelmingly, it was a resilient Christian who carried that conviction. Here's the idea. When I go to work, I'm not just working for the boss. I'm not just working for the man. I'm actually having the Lord as the one I'm accountable to above my deadline or whatever boss I serve. Integrity, faithfulness, as it's mentioned here in 3 John, is an essential characteristic of a disciple. We have a few other passages I want to share with you. This out of 2 Timothy, Paul says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. You, you guys with me? That's here today, that this is happening now. People would rather, as it says, uh, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. Do you know what that person has lost? The, the person who, who, because of a fear of men or a pressure of the culture, abandons the unpopular truth of the Bible to coalesce or concede to the demands of the culture. Do you know that person has lost? Integrity. They've lost integrity. Paul says you need to be prepared to do this in season and out of season. He continues on. uh, They will turn their ears away from truth, turn aside to myths, but you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now, I hope you're not sitting there this morning being like, Pastor, you got a tough job. They're talking to you. Because I'm just going to throw that right back at you. He's talking to you. (laughs) Remember, we're in this together. Even though Paul here is talking to the itinerant here, evangelist Timothy, as Timothy is working there in Ephesus to establish establish elders and get that church healthy, This same understanding given by God's word and the spirit is given to you. It's not always convenient, you know. It's not always easy in your workplace to demonstrate a Christian kind of integrity. I am held captive by this command, as are you. Be prepared in season and out of season, when it's easy, when it's not easy. Be that same type of resilient disciple that gets commended here by John as being faithful. All right, that's number one. Uh, A true disciple is one characterized by integrity. Secondly, a disciple views their behavior as a witness to the world. How you conduct yourself, um, it speaks without words. A while ago, I told you the story of as a missionary, I, I went to play basketball when I was uh, 19, when I was much younger, uh, with some of the guys, and uh, they, would, they were cussing up a storm out there. I mean, just 
like just the most dysfunctional type of basketball I've ever seen. Um, and as I began to play with them, I never corrected their behavior, right? I never said, hey, you kiss your mother with, those, with that mouth? Like, I, I, never, I never shamed any of that. I just didn't cuss. I, I just lived such that my behavior would speak for me. I had uh, a member of this congregation tell me just this past week that his influence in the workplace has had a similar effect on some of the young men. Do you know why? It's because a disciple views their behavior as a witness to the world. When this question was asked, I conduct myself in the workplace knowing that others are watching me. Once more, you see, a resilient disciple thinks that part of the calling of a Christian is to demonstrate Christ-likeness in how they live. Overwhelmingly, up to 80%, we see four out of five Christians saying, yeah, that really matters. This passage from Hebrews 13, I, I love the way in which as the writer of Hebrews gets to the end of the book, he lays these commands on thick for the church. Listen to what he says. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For in doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as though yourselves were suffering. So there's this attitude that's a call to the church of seeing that which we have, our behavior, as a love and reflection to those around us. And I love right in the middle that if you show hospitality to strangers, you might even be entertaining unknowingly angels. The writer of Hebrews here has in mind the story of Abraham. That's, that's where that, uh, that teaching is coming from. I don't know if you remember the story in Genesis as, as Abraham sees three strangers approaching the tents. Um, two angels, one being the angel of the Lord. And uh, there with the pronouncement of what God was going to do in their life to give them a child in their old age. If you remember Sarah listening outside the tent, hears that and starts laughing. Um, it's a great story. But yeah, without knowing it, that kind of demonstration of their behavior was one where even the emissaries of God were being shown what a God-fearer, what a, what a Christ-worshipper would look like. So a disciple knows that their behavior is a witness to others. Thirdly, a disciple views their resources as tools to glorify God. I'd like to just take a look real quickly back into the text here so that you can see this. I, I missed this on the second point, but look with me again in verse 5. He says, after he's faithful, that uh, what he has done for the brothers has shown, has demonstrated his faithfulness, even though they were strangers. Right? So even though these people are not known to them, uh, the disciple still seeks to live in a way that honors Christ. Uh, you will also see here that the call after the church has told them in verse six, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Just think about that for a moment. A disciple uses their resources. John is telling Gaius and the church that's there that when the missionaries come, even though they're strangers, you will do well to take from what God has entrusted you with to bless them because that will honor God. I think that this point, probably above all, is that linchpin that determines if you get it or not. If you're listening this morning, if you're trying to track with this, I think this is the one where the light bulb goes on. 
mean, there's a lot of ministries here at Grace. You hear me preaching all the time, right? There's a, there's a lot of things that you could be involved in. None of them will matter a bit unless you are doing them to glorify God. And once you get that, you begin to reframe your whole life. Well, if I can glorify God in this way, maybe I can glorify God in this way. If I think of those resources that God's given me, maybe I can glorify God with what he's given me here. Do you see how it kind of snowballs after this? This is the, the one point that I think breaks into all the others. Uh, when, when asked this question, I want to use my unique talents and gifts to honor God, just as Sandy's message here of the pennies uh, was helping our little kids get to see. This one, more than anything, got the, one of the highest numbers. That's exactly what Christians think. Yes, that is my whole goal in life is to honor God with the gifts that he has given me and in doing so be glorifying him. This passage from Colossians, you heard it already. Lois read it for us in our New Testament reading. Paul says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving, and everyone who does wrong will be paid for their wrongs. There's no favoritism. You guys get the message? Glorifying God is the whole idea. This out of 1 Peter, Peter writes, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks with the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do so with, again, God's strength, the strength that God provides. Why? So that in all things God will be praised through Christ Jesus. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So whatever it is that your hand finds to do, uh, maybe you're involved in the medical field. Uh, maybe you're involved in science and technology. May, maybe you are invested in your home. You know, wh whether you're working behind a data sheet and a computer or you're on the phone with customers or you're clean and dirty diapers. Whatever it is, use those gifts to glorify God. All right, that's a big one. That one's worth circling. Number four, a disciple will use the resources and opportunities to serve others. Uh, once more, if we look back in the text, you'll see how John calls out those who aren't helping. Look with me in verse seven. He says it was for the sake of the name that they went out receiving no help from who? Uh, my Bible says the pagans. Uh, that's, that's the word he's using to refer to the world, people who aren't in the church. You, you, you may have the greed weed in your life. You may have that same kind of flaw that we all do as American Christians of feeling entitled and loving our stuff. Um, but the resources that you have, according to the world's view, are to serve you. That's not how the Christian views their things. That really the things that God has entrusted to me are given so that I can serve others. Do you know that the fishing pole will fall into the sea? Do you know that the boat will sink below the water? I'm not prophesying anything. Anyway. <laughs> the car will rust. The house will degrade. All, all the material possessions, God says, are reserved right now. This earth with, with its elements is reserved for fire and judgment. So everything you have is temporary already. Everything is. But what you use it for can be eternal.
What a great exchange, isn't it? Take something that's essentially going to go out of style, but then leverage it for the glory of God that will last forever and ever. So here, they got no help, verse 7, they got no help from the pagans, but when it came to the church, a disciple uses his resources to serve others. This quote from the book, uh, they, they see this not only as something that we're convicted to do, but designed to do. They said every person in the church, even and especially those under 18, is designed by God to do God's work in the world. Boy, that's awesome. That's humbling. That's frightening, right? That you are here to do God's work. But that's also amazing. That's empowering. I mean, if, you're, if your job is going out in the woods, somehow God has designed you to glorify him through that work. Whatever the profession is that God has equipped you with on this earth, you are designed to be used for his glory by serving others. This passage from 1 Peter, it's really the two verses before the one we just read. Peter says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So, recognize, according to Peter, the gift that you've been given is a gracious gift. And you are called to be a manager of it. Here's the point. Whatever you have is not for you. It's for others. The nature of spiritual gifting that we find in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the manifestation of the Spirit here on this Pentecost Sunday, the Spirit's working in your life is for the betterment and the equipping of the body. So whatever gift you have, it's not for you. It's given for others. It's been given as grace, and you are called to be a faithful steward. Remember the demonstration of faithfulness. This out of the book of Romans, Paul says in chapter 12, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many, we form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, each according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraged, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. But here's the bottom line point. A disciple is somebody who sees the opportunities they've been given and the resources that they have as a tool, as a resource to serve others. I, I love the picture of a body that Paul gives. Imagine... You were moving a big cement block or a stone for mason work and you dropped it on your toe. Some of you are thinking what you would say in that moment right there. <laughs> what does the rest of the body do when one part is under strain? Does the hand say, yeah, good luck with that. You're good luck getting out of that. Do you, do you see, what, see what the body does? Our own bodies, beautiful metaphors to see how when one part is having a hard time, the rest jump into action to help, to encourage, to serve, to love so that the body as a whole is drawn together into work functioning in the right way. So these missionaries were coming to Gaius' church. Um, we already know diatrophies is called, causing all kinds of problems. But here Gaius is tasked by continuing to help them, serve them, send them on their way in a, in a way that honors God. They're not getting help from the pagans. They're not getting help from the world. They need to see it from you. Fifthly, disciples will attract other disciples to partner together. I love this one. 
If you look back in the text, you'll see in verse 8, we ought therefore show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. This is one of the beauties that I see within church networks. I saw it nowhere better than when I was on the mission field. And do you know that this is a mission field? Do you know the UP is a mission field? You don't need lost people. You don't need lost neighbors. You need anybody that needs to know the love of Christ. So even as I talk of the foreign mission field, don't ever think that this also is not a kind of mission field. But I saw it no better than when I was on the foreign mission field because we were, we were part of one ministry, but there were scattered up and down the island a variety of different ministries. And do you know what we all sought to do? We all sought to work together. And do you know that the burden was lifted off of all of us when we could support one another? Whether that was a resource that we had at the school that we could give fuel or maybe a generator or just, I remember, lumber at some point that they needed. Whatever that was that God had blessed us with, we were able to work together. And in doing so, we were able to attract others to work together. I wonder if you think about your workplace Do you know of any other Christians in your workplace? As you have opportunity on a a nine to fiver or, you know, Monday to Friday, right? That work week. Are there any other believers that you know of? I'm willing to bet that if you carried your Jesus jersey so that people could see, there's probably some others there too. And that as you discover one another, there's a kind of encouragement that only you can give each other as you work in the secular environment. Because the truth is, a disciple will attract other disciples to come and work together with each other. All right, lastly is this. A disciple sees their purpose on mission for God's reputation. Um, I'm gonna, we're going to come back to this concept next week, but I can't let go of verse 7 in the text. If you look with me once more, it says, It was for the sake of the name that they went out. These missionaries are on mission For the sake of the name. Now, that's a curious phrase, isn't that? Does your Bible say the name? So commentators, you know, they love to try to figure out what that means. They they, they have three options. One, they think it's just, it's a code word for God, the name. Um, Another thinks that it might be a code word for uh, for John's kind of realm, the community that was working in John's vicinity. Um, Both of those are probably not right. Uh, rather, the name here is, well, you might have guessed it. Wh- whose name? It's Jesus. It's Jesus' name. Uh, the reason why that's the overwhelming consensus is because uniquely through John's writings, he'll use that same formula, the name, uh, to refer directly to Jesus. And so we think that that's being used here as well. However, it's used in a unique way. Look with me one more time in verse 7. It was for the sake of the name that they went out. Do you guys like the movies uh, Mission Impossible? Anybody? TV show years ago, right? Your mission, should you choose to accept it, (laughs) is to be a Christian for the sake of Jesus' name. This message will self-destruct. I'm just joking. I, I do want to make sure that you know that this is a serious matter. Uh, it was a couple years ago we walked through the book of Revelation examining the seven churches that, that John is to record and write Jesus' message to. 
um, repeatedly to those churches, there's not only a commendation, but there's also a warning that's given. That if you fail for the reputation of God's name, uh, here I wrote some of them down. Jesus says you need to repent or I will remove your lampstand. He says to another church, you need to repent or I will come and fight against those people in your church who are misbehaving. Or the, uh, one more, he says, you need to obey and repent or I will come like a thief. Think with me on this just for a minute before we move to our application. It's not a trick question. Does God's reputation depend on you? It seems like a trick question. Doesn't it seem like a trick question? Because part of me feels like, well, God's so big. What's he need me for? How how could I possibly affect his reputation? And the truth is is you can't in that God is uh, existing in unapproachable light. He is transcendent, but he has made himself vulnerable to you that you carry his reputation. So God chooses to put his name on the line by seeing how you're going to carry it through the world. Now, if we look historically as to how God has done this through time, we will see that, first of all, God walked in the garden with the human creatures. Right? In the garden, there was a direct understanding for the revelation of who God was face to face in the garden. And then what happened? Apples. That's what happened. Sin happened. And God chooses... Years later, centuries later, God chooses one man among all men to form a nation out of so that God will now be represented on earth by a nation. What's the name of that nation? Thank you. Nation of Israel. You all with me today? (laughs) We're almost wrapping up here. The nation of Israel. So that that now if you're going to understand anything about the character of God, you will see it through how this nation displays the holiness of the one true living God in contrast to all the other kinds of gods that are out there. How, how did the Jewish people do with that? They really failed at it. They really, really, really failed at it. Now, don't think that you're any better. <laughs> you, you have been given something unique. Before I get to that, there is a time period right in the middle that God now is no longer going to make himself known by the word of prophets and angels. God now is going to make himself known by the sending of his son. Jesus comes as a special, unique revelation to speak God's words and display God's mighty acts before the people. And then Jesus, in fulfilling the purpose for which he came to redeem mankind, Jesus leaves. Come on, man. We were just getting this thing going, and now you're leaving? Do you remember the disciples in John chapter 14? You're what? You're leaving? And Jesus says, it's good. It's good. It's good for me that I go because if I go, I will send you another counselor, another helper, another paraclete, the the one to come alongside and to help you and encourage you. Who's that? That's the Holy Spirit. And here's here's the amazing thing. In the Old Testament, it was a nation that was confined to one place at one time. In the coming of Jesus, it was a man who was by his own outpouring, his own self humbling, confined to one place at one time. But now the Spirit of God is where? Everywhere. How awesome is this? You have a mission should you choose to accept it. 
There is a secret agent calling for every one of God's children because he has equipped you with the blessing and riches of God himself to indwell you and then to enable you to serve him properly. This is amazing. And this is the hallmark characteristic of a resilient disciple. They believe that they are to be on mission everywhere they go. All right, let's wrap this up. If you have your sermon notes, could you just take those out real quick? I, I hope everybody received a copy of them. I want to ask, uh, kind, of, kind of plead your, inter, your participation for a minute. If you can gr- take out a pen, everybody find a pen, find someone with a purse, ask them for a pen. <laughs> that's not sexist, that's true. That's just true. All right. Um, here's, here's what I would like you to do. If you look at the very bottom of your sermon notes, you'll see eight blanks. And I want you to fill in the second blank. There's four categories here, four different spheres of influence. The first one asks the question, what is your role in the home? I have up here on this screen, I, I, fill, I filled in the blank here, and that's where I want you to fill in the blank as well. Um, I, I am a father and I am a husband. And so that's, that's the answer to that role. That's the role that I Fill in the home. The second blank, uh, what is your job? Well, I could, I'm a pastor. It's kind of like having the teacher's guide for the answers, right? It's a little easy, easy for me on this one. But uh, whatever that is, put your profession. What is it that you do, uh, the job that you are working at? Um, that doesn't have to be in the secular world. Maybe that is, a, that is the profession of working in the home that's still a role. Please fill that blank in what your job is. Um, next, what's your role in the community? Um, I uh, have had opportunity to be the uh, uh, fifth and sixth grade uh, football coach uh, in Kingsford. Um, I have had opportunity to serve on other uh, various groups and committees within town. Right here, I just put an average one. This is just neighbor. I think at some level, we could all put down neighbor. But if, if you have a unique role in the community, maybe you're involved in uh, serving uh, the township in some various capacity. Put that in there for your role in the community. And one last one, what is your role in the world? We might all have the same answer there, right? We're citizens of, um, of the United States. So that is somewhat part of the role that I fill in the world. If you can think of something that's more unique than that, write that one down. So hopefully you have four of the eight blanks filled out. If you do, say amen. Amen. Oh, most of you do. That was fast. All right, good. Does anybody need more time? You're all good. This is not a trick, but it seems tricky. I, I now want you to put this title in front of all four of those. Because what we need to do is do a little better at uniting our life and our faith. I think that this application, hopefully it hits you the same way that it hits me, but this is a significant paradigm shift as to how I think about who I am and my role in this world. If we are going to be resilient disciples, it means that we've integrated our faith into our lives. And so before I'm a father, I'm a Christian father. Do you know what that means? It means that I am now confined by God's teaching for how I father my children. I'm not just a husband, I'm a Christian husband. That means that I am confined to bring glory to God, to to how I treat my wife and serve her as Christ loved the church. I'm not just a worker in the world. I'm a Christian worker in the world. I'm not just a neighbor. I'm a Christian neighbor. Do you guys remember Mr. Rogers? Won't you be my 
Won't you be? Won't you be? Love that dude. What if we all thought that way? Do you know what America does? They build fences so they don't have to interact with their neighbors. Mr. Rogers was like, I hope you can be my neighbor so that I can serve and bless you. And what about this last one? About our world and our nation. Before I'm an American, careful with patriotism. Patriotism is good. It's noble, especially when it's supporting those things that God has endowed us with. And we are very blessed in our country. But you're not an American Christian. Yikes. You are a Christian who's also an American. My hope is that as you look to this list, and I will leave you with this final thought, that one of these four you might need a little better work on. What do you think? You guys feel like that? If you were to look at this list, one of these four is just, yeah, I think, I think I'm doing well on this one and that one and that one, but maybe I could do a little bit better on one of these. My encouragement would be, I hope by the Spirit's leading that you can sense that today, that you just circle that one and spend this week working towards continuing to integrate your life and your faith for the witness of God and for the sake of that next generation that needs to see authentic, genuine disciples. Amen? Let's pray.